God, we offer ourselves to you uh, as hopefully attentive people, acknowledging that you're the king, uh, that your word is true, that your word is for us a gift of guidance and reality and help and love. Help us uh, to be attentive as much as that is up to us. Speak to us, pour into us, plant within us seeds that will grow into things that bring you glory and us joy. Give us hearts that are fertile soil, eyes that are good to see, ears that are good to hear. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they would be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray and in the name and in the character of Jesus. Amen. So reading now from Acts chapter 1, the very first verse, listen closely, listen carefully. This, we believe, is God's word. In my former book, Theophilus, referring to the Gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, his ascension, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, the cross, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. Then the apostles gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember that Jesus' primary interest was the kingdom of God, which is not limited to one nation. They ask about the kingdom of Israel. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus kind of ignores their question about the kingdom of Israel and gets back to his own agenda. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And a witness is someone who sees something, someone who hears something, someone who can testify about that something, that it really happened, that it really was, that it is true, that it represents truth. Do you swear to tell the truth? the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God, is what witnesses are asked and sworn to tell and to say and to speak and to report and to convey. And for just that purpose, exactly that purpose, according to Luke, God would send to Jesus' disciples the Holy Spirit that they might be witnesses or that they might bear witness with power which would mean with impact, with influence, affecting change. And this is what Jesus promised at the book, at the beginning of the book of Acts, right up front at chapter one, and in the next chapter in Acts chapter two. God actually does what he promised, and he sends Holy Spirit to his disciples. 
and the Holy Spirit who is invisible, as we read in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit who's invisible causes to appear above the disciples' heads fire in the shape of tongues. The fire was not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not the fire. Rather, the Holy Spirit caused to appear above Jesus' disciples' heads what appeared to be, in the shape of fire, tongues. Rather than, than doing something else, having some other appearance, the Holy Spirit very intentionally chooses a form of tongues as a sign that they were going to be empowered to speak. What happened, what appeared above Jesus' disciples' heads was not fire in the shape of eyes to indicate that they would have greater power to see or noses in the shape of fire to indicate that they would have greater power to smell or ears to indicate that they would have greater supernatural power to hear, think about it, but rather tongues of fire because the Holy Spirit was giving them the power to more effectively speak and to be witnesses and to tell and to proclaim about Jesus and his kingdom. Many of us love the passage and the idea and the reality of what happened on that first Pentecost after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, but don't fully appreciate the context and why that fire appeared in the shape of tongues. And so that's what the early church did. They bore witness, they announced, they told, they proclaimed immediately and continuously. They bore witness to the realities of Jesus with their tongues, with their mouth, with their speech, with everything they had to communicate with others. And the church, no surprise, explodes in growth, we read, in the early chapters and then the middle chapters, and then the later chapters, all over those areas that Jesus said they would, in Jerusalem, in Judea, to Samaria, Philip, and to the ends of the earth. Paul going to all of the known Mediterranean world and beyond. And so it's no surprise that the word witness shows up more often in the book of Acts than any other book in the Bible by far. Jesus saying to his disciples, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You, turn around and look at the people around you real quick. You, you are the you, you are the you. The Lord saying to Paul through Ananias, after Paul was blinded by the great light on the road to Damascus, recorded three times in the book of Acts because it's so important. You will be God's witness to all people over and over throughout the book of Acts. And so it's no surprise that the church, and by that I mean the community or the movement of God's people, not the building, not the organization, but the community or the movement of God's people who are in Christ and who are being saved. The church in that sense in Acts was growing exponentially as I think the church and the community of Christ and the numbers of people truly in Christ could still be growing today exponentially if God's people were filled with God's spirit and understood their calling, our calling, to be witnesses. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God, to the glory of God. Are you ready to take that pledge to put your hand so ironically in our culture on a Bible? Yeah? 
But the church with which we're familiar and that we are a part of in the 21st century, Western, in the big Western hemisphere sense of Western, American, fairly educated, open-minded, postmodern society does not regularly, often, spontaneously, eagerly, boldly bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And the power of God demonstrated in that event or the love of God demonstrated in his cross. The church doesn't often and regularly and continuously bear witness to those events and to the reality of Jesus. Instead, over the centuries, the church has lost most of its missional impulse and has faded into the woodwork of a supposedly Christian country that possesses what it believes and what the church has come to naively believe also that there's a more enlightened worldview out there. And shrinking back into that enlightened worldview, the church has lost confidence in the gospel of the kingdom and so has lost confidence in its missional impulse and so has withdrawn to the periphery in the quiet corners of our culture, not wanting to appear either out of step with society or antiquated or awkward or naive or foolish. And so in much of the Western church today, bearing witness to the reality of Jesus' resurrection and transformative power of God's grace through God's spirit and God's word and God's people, bearing witness to these things has largely been turned over to the professionals and to church's leaders and to one or two crazies in every congregation maybe. And so the average church, and by that I mean the people, And so the average church in our modern age is not prepared, equipped, or empowered to bear witness to the paradigm-shifting reality of Jesus and his kingdom today. Our churches aren't even organized for such. That's not even an expectation. We don't think in that way. But rather, the church has taken on the form of something people go to once a week and then go home. And then come back a couple of weeks later and check in and get a fill up and maybe a checkup. And the average church looks more like a fraternal organization or a tired service group or something like that. Rather than a semi-organized and eclectic collective of people above whose heads appear to be something like tongues of fire who can't seem to talk, stop talking and telling about a Savior and Lord who was dead and buried, but who rose again on the third day. But I believe that the church can again be that body, that we can again be that body, that other churches can again be that way and embody that impulse. We can be that church with the help of God's spirit who's at the door, And how? What did the witnessing of the early church in Acts look like? I think about three things as I read through the book of Acts. First, the people, the church, the people were telling other people what they'd seen, beginning with Mary and Mary, and then Peter and John. Oh, Jesus is alive, and continued on into the first chapters of the book of Acts. Oh, did you know that Jesus was dead? You killed him. Actually, you killed him. And your leaders, they killed him. 
And everyone made sure he was really dead. But then he was alive again for 40 days. And Peter, who's pretty timid, scared, afraid, no confidence, all of a sudden ends up in the public square at the top of his lungs on a pedestal, yelling, shouting, proclaiming boldly at the risk of his own life. Did you all know? We know, we saw, we interacted. Let us tell you about. And so the first way that they witnessed was we were eyewitnesses. The second way that they witnessed was, oh, I actually had this interaction with the Lord Jesus, some before his cross and resurrection, some after, in which their lives were literally changed. Think of the man who used to live in the catacombs or in the tombs across the Sea of Galilee. He begged to follow Jesus. Jesus said, go back and be a witness. His life had gone from craziness and out of control and in chains and scratching and tearing himself up to a spirit-filled being who was filled with the love of God. So the second way people said, this is what's happened to me. This is my experience. Case in point is the Apostle Paul who has his Damascus Road experience. And all of a sudden, he's not the same man. He doesn't just see Jesus, but he's gone through a 180. He goes from angry, mean, wicked, evil terrorist to an apostle of love, to an apostle of love, to an apostle of grace, to someone who only understands the law and keeping to the law, to someone who knows the law can't cut it, nor can perfection in keeping the law, but that only by this thing called grace, undeserved merited favor, which he goes on to articulate better than anyone had in history up until that point. This is what's happened to me. This is what I saw. We were eyewitnesses. He's walking around. Jesus is alive too. This is what happened to me. This was my personal experience. And then third, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was said before. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the one you've been waiting for. Let's open the scriptures. Let's open history and look and see that over the course of history, here's the one that we were looking for, waiting for, longing for, hoping for, praying for. He's here. Let me show you. Let me explain. He's the light to the Gentiles that Isaiah talked about. He's the one who would bear the sins of his people, Isaiah 53. He is the one we were hoping for. We read in Acts multiple times where Paul reasoned with people. And I put this in the third category or maybe the fourth. Where Paul witnessed by reasoning with people in synagogues wherever he went around the Mediterranean world, beginning with the Jewish people and saying this Jesus is the fulfillment of your prophecy, but then also going to the Greeks ending up at the epicenter of Greek thought in the entire world in Athens at the Areopagus on Mars Hill, where he went head to head with the brightest and most erudite minds on the planet at the time, saying, oh, your philosophers say this, your philosophers say this. Have you considered Jesus might fit into this in a way that fits all that you were looking for, hoping for about Logos? Paul even quotes in Acts 17, their esteemed authors and says, oh, here's Jesus. Have you considered him? Many of us have never taken a step forward 
beyond the basic elementary school, Sunday school of reasoning with our faith. And so if you haven't, I encourage you to do so because the faith of the church and the faith of the centuries and the faith of the scriptures is reliable, is trustworthy, is founded on solid ground. And if you've never dug into that for yourselves, you need to so that you might be emboldened to witness with confidence some books. Read some Dallas Willard. Read Tim Keller's The Reason for God. Read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, it's good reading. Did a survey of our elders not too long ago, and the book that had the most influence in their faith development was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It's really small. Not fast reading, but if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. Other elders mentioned books by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. If you want to get really basic, Cliff Connectley's Give Me an Answer, Paul Little's Know Why You Believe, Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. Anyone remember that from the 1980s? There you go. And then these words from Peter in chapter three of his first letter, always be prepared. We need to get prepared. Some of us have never prepared, trained, studied, thought, conversed. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Of course, I know, I know this. It doesn't seem like people today are as receptive to the good news about Jesus than they were at biblical times. It seems so easy. They preached and people came. They told and people fell down and said, yes, I believe. Today, people don't believe in God much. It's a different time. I agree. It's a different world. In biblical times, everyone seemed to believe. Today, everyone seems to be skeptical about God and certainly God packaged in religion. Moreover, and more specifically, people today in our part of the world have been inoculated against Christianity or what they think Christianity is. And overexposure has bred disdain. And admittedly, the world has seen power-hungry pastors and church leaders and Christians and scandal after scandal after scandal involving sex and power and money. They have seen the church mistreat people, ignore other people, judge still other people, and then big, build big buildings. Much of our part of the world has formed an opinion about the church and closed their minds to Jesus. Father, forgive us. Third, there is a certain, certain naivete about Jesus and the scriptures. People in our world think they know Jesus, but in my conversations with them, really don't really don't know very much about the Jesus that we read about in the scriptures and so need to be deprogrammed is a way I would put that. And people don't know what they need to be deprogrammed from or about. But many people in our world would benefit by unlearning all of the wrong, false, misleading, in some cases negative, unhelpful things they've been taught and that they've seen and thought about Jesus and his way. And then there's the barrier of sin that in our modern age, people don't like to talk about. And so if you lead with sin and you need to be forgiven, you may as well just say goodbye 
to a lot of people on that one. Because the idea of sin is an out-of-date idea in much of our world. And so not always the best place to start, though we must eventually get there and get to the one who forgives sin and who loves us in our sin and who is willing and eager to have that put behind us. And then there's the fact and the reality that the world in which you and I live today is a culture of entertainment. And the gospel isn't necessarily entertaining. And so today the gospel has to compete with the things that we're more drawn to, all of the entertainment around us. And it's everywhere. We have grown up, some of us, and many of us live, and the next generation grows up in a world in which they are always being entertained. And if they're not being entertained, they're otherwise being medicated by all sorts of things that alleviate the struggles and the questions within. Technology devices, phones, supposedly smart TVs and supposedly smartphones have come between us and the still small voice. No one slows down anymore. We are saturated with media and noise. But as it turns out, what is smart or called smart is in the end often dumb to God. And so there's, I understand, I look out, I see it with you, an aversion and walls and a resistance in our world to the gospel of the kingdom, to Jesus and to his way. More than there was in biblical times when everyone believed in God or the spirit world and different spirits and gods. Paul ends up in Athens, of course, and there's even an idol you know to the unknown God just covering their bases because there were so many gods and everyone believed. But in our world, that is not the case. And yet, who doesn't need and want in their life? Joy and peace and love and grace and mercy and kindness and truth. Who in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, among your friends and family, doesn't want those things that are integral to the kingdom? People don't want religion, understandably. People aren't knocking on our door wanting to become Presbyterian, I promise you. But who doesn't want the things that the kingdom are about and offers in their lives. Not the kingdom of Israel, not the kingdom of any nation, Jesus says, but the kingdom or the reign or the rule of a loving and gracious God whom Jesus called Father. As I was doing some preparation and sort of digging into this passage yesterday and thinking about Acts, which many of us have just finished reading. I saw the word boldness a couple of times. How many of you think of yourselves as bold? Just show of hands. Okay, just Mia. Two other people, three other people, fine. 
And, and you are, Mia. We love you. The word boldness shows up more times in the book of Acts than the entire New Old Testament combined. The word boldness shows up as many times in the rest of the New Testament as it does in Acts alone. The witnessing of the people of God in the book of Acts is characterized by, maybe above all other things, boldness. And so that must be our prayer. That must be what we trust God for and in. Again, Peter's words, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Ah, too often our boldness may have led into lack of respect, lack of sensitivity, lack of awareness, lack of another person's autonomy, lack of respect. But do this with gentleness. Dallas Willer has a great little book called The Allure of Gentleness. And it's about thoughtfully sharing one's faith. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. To this, I believe God is calling all of us. And I know there's a little resistance. I don't know enough. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. Okay. If I believe in him, then I can believe what he says. Okay. I don't have the time. Oh, you have the time. I know some of the ways you spend your time. And some of the ways I spend my time. We have time. I tried that once and it didn't work. That's like a fisherman going out and not catching any fish one day and kind of going, I tried that, it didn't work. I'm never going to do that again. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm an introvert. Some people say, it's not my gift. Oh, it's everyone's gift. And I'm an introvert too. The most painful part of my week is standing in front of you. And the most refreshing part of my week is retreating to my office and being alone. I love you, though. God, give us boldness for that to which you've called us. Pick up one starfish and throw it back in the ocean. Why? Does it really make a difference? It does for that one starfish for that one person you may talk to. Paul plants, Apollos waters, God causes things to grow. We don't know what the seeds that we plant, and Jesus has this parable about generously, lavishly, prodigally, casting seeds where they might just hit some fertile soil in God's grace. And someone else comes along later and waters that and God causes it to grow. What have you witnessed? What can you bear witness to? 
To whom is God calling you to witness? Are you filled with God's spirit? Those are some questions that I want us to wrestle with today and in just a moment. But before that, I want to rewind to where we started. The mission of First Presbyterian Church San Mateo is to honor God by helping people out there and in here, you and me, become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Who would like to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Depends what that means. See a couple of you saying. Our vision and our values are to see people grow spiritually. Following the Lord Jesus, we strive to cultivate spiritual growth continuously. Telling people boldly about what you know, have seen, have witnessed, believe, trust, is a way and a great way to grow spiritually and for us together to cultivate spiritual growth continuously. That's what it is. What does that line mean? How do we get there? When we go out on that limb, when we trust God, when we give thought and prayer to how we might bear witness and then do that, we actually grow spiritually do you want to grow spiritually? Do you want to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus? If not, we're spinning our wheels. If you do, this is one really good way. And so Paul's got his Damascus Road experience, which is irrefutable. You hopefully have some experience with God's grace in your life some experience with God's spirit, some experience with God's power, some experience, some transformative reality in your life based on the love of God in Jesus Christ. That you can tell as a starting point. And it's irrefutable by anyone else. So what is your witness? To whom is God calling you to witness? And how can you go about doing that today? I'm going to pause right there and ask you to grab a little white card in the pew in front of you and take out a writing utensil, one of those pens, and answer those questions for yourself, not for me. We're not turning them in. We're not bringing them forward today. Anything else? If you're at home, grab a piece of paper, get out your computer screen, type yourself an email on your phone, whatever you need to do. What have you witnessed? How can you bear witness? To whom is God calling you to be a witness? What have you witnessed? How can you bear witness? To whom is God calling you to be a witness? Let's take a minute on that.
If you need more time, you can do that as we pray in just a moment, as we sing, or you can sit in the pew or sit at home until you're done with whatever is helpful for you to do, to write. I hear, for example, followers of Jesus enthusiastically telling other people about the last Netflix series they've binged or a great restaurant they enjoyed or a vacation spot that you just got to go to or a product you just got to buy that really works really great. If we can do that, then we can share with people the news, the reality, the truth, the goodness of God and Jesus Christ who has the power to transform individual lives and entire communities and hopefully the world. If you don't know where to start, you can start by saying simply to someone, to anyone, to everyone, you matter to God. You matter to God. I know that. The scriptures tell me that. It's been my experience in Jesus. You matter to God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would as... uh, that you would give us boldness as individuals and as a congregation, as the church, big C, little C, all the C's. The church here, the church there, the church in Russia, the church in Ukraine, the church in Turkey, the church in Sudan, the church in England, the church of England the church in Mexico and Colombia and Ecuador, the church of Ghana and South Africa, the church in South Korea and North Korea, the church in Indonesia, the church in China, that you would prompt us by your spirit to live boldly, to put things on the line, to trust you with words, You alone have the words of eternal life. Forgive our self-absorption. Forgive our laziness. Forgive our ambivalence. Awaken us to the life of your spirit within us. Come. Amen.